Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming three women who work with the Humane Prison Hospice Project, and I'll introduce them each to you. Ladybird Rolling Morgan is co-founder and project director of the project. Initially, as both a hospice nurse and sexual assault nurse examiner, she provided direct care to people dying and those surviving sexual assault. This transitioned first into training, managing, and supervising teams of people caring for the dying, and then for the last three years, training, managing, and supervising teams of people providing support to survivors of sexual violence with Doctors Without Borders. As a facilitator and teacher, Lady Bird has guided medical practitioners, families, and private caregivers, as well as directors of programs and institutions around the world on how to be present to life stories that may be hard to hear or bear witness to. Sandra Fish is a a co-founder of the Humane Prison Hospice Project as well, an actor, writer, caregiver with decades of passion for prison reform and end-of-life issues. She taught in Rikers Island Prison, worked as an employment specialist for newly released prisoners in Manhattan, attended ex-prisoner support groups, sat in on parole hearings, and visited Sing Sing to observe classrooms there. While working with older, newly released prisoners, she heard time and time again, I'll never go back. If I go back, I'll die in prison. I don't want to die in prison. I don't want to die in prison. Sandra couldn't get that out of her head or heart and will not give up on the mission to make sure there is end-of-life care with prisoners giving the volunteer care in every prison. Currently, Sandra is co-chair of the San Francisco End of Life Network and is trained and worked as a hospice volunteer with added training in pediatric hospice and visual. And finally, Susan Barber, who was on a few weeks ago uh, to talk about her work in general and now joins us again, has worked with people who are dying and those who care for them for 30 years. Her work is a daily honoring of Stephen and Andrea Levine, whose books, lectures, and workshops saved her life in a time when friends were dying left and right during the San Francisco AIDS crisis. As a hospice volunteer coordinator for 20-plus years, she's trained 650-plus people whose desire is to support the dying and their families. As a community educator, Susan continues to be inspired by those who show up curious, bereft, inspired, to be of service, to learn, and to honor those who've died. She's worked for the last three and a half years at Mission Hospice and Home Care, which remains one of the few not-for-profit, community-founded and centered hospice programs in the U.S., and as such, they're innovators for the community. On April 20th, 2018, Susan, Ladybeard, and Sandra completed training of nine men incarcerated in San Quentin as compassionate end-of-life volunteers, and that's going to be a pretty major focus of our talk today. Welcome, everybody. Thank Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. I'm I'm really excited to have you on. Um, You know, there's such a 
I'm I'm quite quite interested in the what goes on in in prisons and San Quentin happens to be very near me. And when I heard you were doing this from Susan, I was just so excited by it. I've as you all know, I've had Edgar Barons on who's whose film prisoner prison prison terminals, <laughs> excuse me. Um is about another hospice program elsewhere in the country, and I was so moved by that film. So I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk with you about what's going on uh, out, out here. I wonder if we could start maybe Ladybird with um, how wh- how this project got started um, of of trying to train people at San Quentin inmates at San Quentin on uh, end of life care principles. Um, I'm actually going to defer this to Sandy Fish because she was very instrumental in starting this um, I, because she's sort of been carrying the heart of the program. Um, Wonderful. So if you don't mind, I would Not love at for all. Sandy to speak about this first. It'd be great. Absolutely. Well, I will do that, and then, and then Lady Bird will tell you her, her, what her piece when she... I certainly want to hear how each, of you, how each of you got to it, you know. Um, right how each of you came to do this work because it is unusual work. Right. Uh, and I want to be kind of brief because it's been going for me it, it 30 years ago I'm uh, as an actor I was in a play about getting out of prison and there was intense research and we went to prisons and it was my first eye opener about uh, our prison system and I never got over it. So organically, over the decades, I kept getting drawn back into prisons to work, to observe, and just have a a, a passion about it. And then I started in end of life probably in 97 when I held my friend's hand when she took her last breath and got very involved in that. And then I was working in a a law office of a friend's in, um, it was probably 2006 or 7 probably, and asked him how they were dying in San... All of a sudden it occurred to me, oh, because I had moved back to the West Coast, and I said, how are they dying in San Quentin? And he's, and he's a very uh, experienced defense attorney and started prison law office, and I said, how are they dying in San Quentin? He said, badly. Mm. So I decided I was going to go in and sit with inmates, and I started making inquiries, and of course they said, well, first of all, you need training, and I went off to a hospice and learned, you know, did volunteer for a couple years and then realized, oh, uh, you know, I started to hear the Angola prison who has a, a documentary on their really well-known inmate-supported hospice. So I started by long, long tail of connecting a hospice to San Quentin and to... And that sort of didn't quite work out and, and, you know, making letters and phone calls and long stories around this. And slowly, and, and that was, and, and, and that was start, and then 2008, I had gone in and met the Brothers Keepers and realized they're the perfect group and, and then uh, met Lady Bird, I don't know, in 2011 or so, but 2012, um, uh, I, I must say that when Lady Bird's energy came on board, things did start to move more quickly. And the one thing I can say is when she, she was going to Doctors Without Borders, and I'll let her tell her story, but I, she was said, oh, don't start it without me. 
And I said, don't worry, this is a like long and slow <laughs> process. And sure enough, I was still making phone calls and going in and begging people when she returned from Doctors Without Borders. So labor and take it, off, take, take it from there. <laughs> Unless you have any questions about that, Cheryl. Well, I, I just a comment really, which is that I I um, it feels so familiar to me the kind of winding path that a lot of my guests have taken. Like yes. we're just kind of following breadcrumbs along. Yes. And and I do and I do think that has something to do with the subject of this show, you know, that it's there's there's not as mental a process when you're following some calling. It just kind of leads you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know. And, and the other point is, you know, because really people would say, time. "Oh, you're still doing that," <laughs> and I would say, "I would drop it like a hot rock," but I can't. You oh, know, no. it, it's 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 it just it's just one of those things where it's like, no, I'll I will never stop. Yes. And, that's just, and the other thing know. that occurs to me is just how much runs against any kind of humane, um, humane human, um, redemptive program in a prison. That that those are hard to get going often. Oh yeah, uh, and right. and so that's a piece of it too, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Working in the prisons is not is is unusual. So go ahead, Ladybird. I'm sorry. I had to tell that yes. little. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. No, so um, I guess my involvement really, Santi said, started in 2011 when I was considering leaving with Doctors Without Borders, and we had been talking about hospice in prisons and how important that would be, and I was leaving the country, and it hadn't really happened yet. Um, when I made it back, it was the perfect, for me, it was the perfect sort of breadcrumb trail that I was following um, to lead me to San Quentin, the work in sexual violence and um, torture and trauma and all of these places where I was um, helping people find a path to healing mm. continually left out the story of the people who had actually been causing the harm mm. and what was happening with them and what sort of the shadow side of, um, of crime and how did we actually stop it as opposed to just continually putting Band-Aids onto things. And I was getting really frustrated and disillusioned with my work working um, in sexual violence with just the survivors. Um, because a lot of people perpetrating were also survivors of sexual violence and trauma. Absolutely. So it felt like a great match. When we met with the Brothers Keepers, they thought that I was a great match. They were really wanting to bring in hospice to um, add, add to their crisis intervention training. And initially, the plan was that I was going to actually do all of it because I'm a nurse and a social worker, um, that I could just provide the training myself, but realized that I don't have my own certificate didn't really have the time to come up with an, an entire curriculum um, based on my own understanding and knowledge and teaching. So um, as Sandy has, has sort of mentioned, it's really about the community and other people getting involved as well. And so Sandy and I started talking about why don't we reach out to other hospices who might be interested in supporting our work with Humane Prison Hospice Project, and that way other prisons, when they get on board with it, could actually use the hospices in their areas where it's not just about us doing something but mm. a community effort of this is what's happening in the prison in your community. These are the hospice folks that can be involved. It's not just about me and Sandy going in and, and teaching everybody everything and sort of being the bosses in that way. So it was very organic um, and felt really um, inclusive and important to bring in other folks' voices, um, such as Susan and Mission Hospice. And just to speak to Edgar, he's also on our board 
um, we have these phenomenal people who are very committed to you know supporting prison and hospice. And so we have all these voices that support us in different ways of how we can get the, the message out there of how important this is, how life-changing it is. And for me to step away from just focusing on sexual violence or the traumas that caused people to cause harm, I um, was turning my attention to what was a way to bring humanity back in and what was a way to bring these folks um, a chance to actually experience being human and let that be the guiding you know, breadcrumb trail that actually brought people to a sense of freedom and, and peace and let it be through learning how to care for the dying, how it was a beautiful match. That really resonates for me in the sense that I've thought a lot about all of the, since my my lens is grief, all of the grief that's Mm -hmm. in the criminal justice system uh, on all ends of the spectrum. And then, of course, the loss of of freedom that's involved in being incarcerated is another another grief. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people very unprepared for that are all thrown in there together and when I hear about I, I'd like to um, you know give people a little history on the brothers keepers and you can add if I don't quite get it right that they started to um, kind of coalesce around uh, suicide prevention for other inmates who fe- who they felt were at danger but I get the impression they've grown into kind of um, psychosocial support in general would that be accurate to say? Yes, that would be accurate. Um, the Bay Area Women Against Rape was the original organization that provided this crisis support training to them to help them with suicide. But because they were Bay Area Women Against Rape, they actually had a lot more information um, that they could provide. And so these men over the years, it started in 2005, were trained to be able to talk about domestic violence and child abuse and sexual assault and um, all of the different things that they might have experienced in their youth, in their childhood, as well as what they're experiencing in prison. So they, they became highly skilled um, to basically support each other through hard times um, without it going on records or, you know, getting kind of in the mess of what it means to have a hard time in prison. Um, they were just, they were already doing the work. And from the beginning, they had been asking for information on end of life and death and dying. Marsha and Diane, who were um, responsible for Bay Area Women Against, Against Rape, actually brought in a small hospice training years ago to give them a little bit of an idea of something. Um, and the men were just really eager to have more information because they, they address this, uh, you know, regularly. Yeah. We have a few more minutes before the break, and before we go out on break, Susan, I want to bring you in. Uh, we've heard two, you know, meandering paths to this. Um, how did you and Mission Hospice get involved in the project? Well, back to the San Francisco End of Life Coalition. Uh, when I came to work at Mission Hospice and Home Care in 2015, I was able to um, go regularly once a month. We meet on the first Wednesday of the month. I met Sandy, who was remains the co-chair. And within, I think at the very first meeting, that February of, or March of 2015, Sandy announced that Edgar Behrens was going to be coming with his film Prison Terminal. And as a new community education person for Mission Hospice and Home Care, I contacted Edgar to see if he would show the film here, which we've done, I think, for three years now. And mm-hmm. over that time, um, Sandy and Lady Bird have also introduced me to a gentleman named Marvin Much, who's instrumental in the San Quentin Brothers Keepers um, project and was 
um, incarcerated unjustly for 41 years of his life, and he started to attend on occasion the um, San Francisco End of Life Coalition. And in 2017, Edgar was coming back to show the film at San Quentin, and we were in touch about him doing a showing here at Mission Hospice and Home Care. And both my manager and our chief clinical officer here, Lisa Deal, um, were in agreement that it would be um, interesting. They were both interested to meet with Marvin and Edgar and Lady Bird and Sandy um, after hearing from me about their desire to have a training uh, for a group of men that were already highly trained in so many other areas that were asking for this end-of-life training, and they wanted to be certified from an existing hospice program. So mm-hmm. um, they met at the end of June, I believe, and um, Lisa spoke with our board and our executive director who agreed that this was the right thing to do, even though it's San Quentin is a bit outside of our service area. And then um, Lady Bird, Sandy, and I started to talk about what could work, and within, I think at the beginning of September, there was an agreement um, that the a training could take place of sorts. And so we began last September and it ended, I think it was, yeah, we ended at the end of April. And end of April, eight yeah. Men were, yeah, eight men were in the class and one was doing it kind of remotely. He came at the beginning and wasn't able to continue to come to the class. And also, it, as you know, my love of Stephen Levine, when I was volunteering back in the late 80s and early 90s with somebody that was working with him before I was working with them, we were sending out a lot of information, books and tapes and things uh, for, to prisoners that were writing to us, um, knowing that Stephen kind of got his start meditating uh, in Rikers Island. And that was the beginning of his work, and they were very interested, and at the time I was very interested in thinking about this for San Quentin, and I'm so grateful that nothing happened in the late 80s or early 90s because I certainly was not, um, I would not have had the capacity to navigate that. Um, it took about <laughs> yeah. 20 years. So that's how <laughs> you know, it's, got involved. It's time, it's time to go to our first break, but I just, I just want to um, uh, give some people some background, and then we can fill it out more but um, the reason this seems so critical to me is that uh, we have an incredibly high um, percentage of the world's incarcerated population way out of proportion Uh, I I found a statistic on one of the sites um, since the 70s it's grown 700 Mm. percent which means that the it's got to mean that the aging population in prison is is um, just huge um, because so many people were three strikes, for instance, in California. A lot of people were locked up for life, whether their individual three crimes would have merited that. And so there's no way out. Um, and that just seems to be a, really a major part of this picture here. So let's talk mm-hmm. more about that when we get back. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and to find the Humane Prison Hospice Project, you can go to humaneprisonhospiceproject.org. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Lady Bird, Morgan, Sandy Fish, and Susan Barber about their work uh, with a uh, compassionate end-of-life training program at San Quentin Prison. And uh, you reminded me during the break, so I want to be sure to say that there is not yet a hospice at San Quentin. Um, I'm hopefully saying not yet, Um, Mm -hmm. but... But there are um, inmates interested in being better informed about how to be with their fellow inmates who are facing the end of their their lives. Would that accurately uh, portray what the training was for? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so now we're working on policy, so eventually they will be going in to the 
medical mm-hmm. facility there. Um, I was I was interested in Edgar's film that they created a, a separate place that had very different, um, I guess, different rules, different a different energy than than the the uh, standard prison facilities. Would that be a hope of yours for um, hospices in prisons in general that they be kind of a softer environment for people? Most definitely, yes. And is that hard to hard to um, talk with prison officials about? Can you find any? Can you find openness to that in the people that are running the the prison? You know, it's a variety of people running the prison. For the most part, prisons want to say no. Um, and the head of health at San Quentin is is very open, but his hands are tied. So it's a it's a real process. And like it in prison terminal, it was a nurse in the in the medical facility who got it going, which would be ideal. But we we are you know making meetings in Sacramento and. And uh, eventually it will happen, but yeah, it, it's 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 uh, they don't like change, and maybe Ladybird can speak to the medical uh, aspect of it and that and how that is. Yeah, Absolutely, well, still just that added element of hospice and palliative care still being somewhat uncomfortable for a lot of people in the medical field. I mean, here in the Bay Area, we sort of talk about it all of the time, and it you almost forget that it's not something that everybody is comfortable with. But in general, most physicians and nurses did not go into the practice to become hospice and palliative care nurses and doctors. And so it's not something they're immediately comfortable with. And it initially tends to stress people out um, Mm. until they understand, which is why, I mean, Susan can speak to that as well, like why education is so important and why everyone's like, oh, my gosh, I wish I had understood that or I had known that. So it's a a process of educating I think as people understand it, they realize it actually supports them as well. Um, it supports everybody. But initially, it seems like an added burden. Well, and the, but the other aspect I would imagine is that our prison system, system is very much based on a punishment mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least it looks that way from my outside view. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you offer someone some um, real care and love and hand-holding at the end of their life uh, may run contrary to some people's conception of what incarceration is about. Do you run into that at all? Well, Marvin, actually, Marvin Much, who Susan mentioned, comments on this frequently about how, yeah, this, this punishment mentality that prisons were created on, but to actually condone suffering and torture really speaks to the humanity of everyone outside right. of the individuals who have maybe That's committed right. a crime or done something horrific that you feel like they need to be punished for. Absolutely. The element of humans now continuing to allow suffering is really speaks volumes about um, the culture in general. And I think when people realize that and sort of look at it in that lens, their initial intention isn't to cause a lot of suffering. But they just don't know how to actually put those pieces together that, oh, allowing hospice in a prison isn't actually really changing the fact that they're still in prison. They're still in prison. It's not like they're going to the spa. Um, They're getting some separate care that's really different. And it also ends up um, giving the medical community a little bit softer of an experience in terms of just watching people suffer. 
Right. And, and, Absolutely. And I do want to interject that there was a great, it depends on the warden, there was a fabulous woman warden, Jeannie Woodford, who added the R to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, so it's the CDPR. And it has been proven and documented how much rehabilitation and, and transformation goes on when prisoners are involved in end of life and helping each other, and it, and it helps the staff and and the morale. And of course, it does save money. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think yeah. it's a, it seems slow, but there seems to be a groundswell and a building of this realization and eventually this will be something that will be in every prison but yeah there is the the idea of why why should we help someone but yeah it it speaks about us really well and it also i think there's a huge disincentivizing um the truth is that many many prisons are now for profit they are mm. very profitable and um, there are people that can speak to this much more directly than I can, but there is no incentive for in a for-profit prison right. system to rehabilitate people because the right. only way that money is being made, right. our tax dollars are being sent to private organizations that are making a lot of money running private prison, and it's just... It's a dis- it doesn't incentivize anybody to rehabilitate people and get yeah, that, them out of the system. Yeah, that needs to be outlawed. <laughs> and I think that that is really a fundamental problem that yes. um, many people don't know exists. But, oh. you know, in the last 15 years, I think we've quadru- in California we've quadrupled the number of people 55 and over that are being sentenced. And then when you try mm. to figure out how are these people with dementia and cancer mm. and all of the other things, it's... I can't, you know, you can, working in a hospice, we speak a lot to people who are navigating this with family support on the outside and navigating this kind of um, slow decline in prison um, is torturous when there aren't adequate medical facilities um, and palliative care for people in the prison. And um, what was so striking to me, meeting the men from the Brothers Keepers on the very first day of our class, I asked, what is it that motivates you every day to be part of this program and to be a peer counselor to support other people here who may or may not have any interest in bettering themselves in some way? And every one of them said, because of the crime I committed, this is a way for me to give back to other human beings because now I understand how the weight of that crime in a way that I couldn't when it was committed. And... um if we think that prison has anything to do with rehabilitation, um, those kinds of um, conversations, um, giving people an opportunity to do some really hard work. It's hard to be a hospice volunteer when you're in a hospice program with great support. Doing it as a thing, you know, in a small group of people with a huge population of ill and dying people, um, I, I just, I cannot, I can't imagine just saying that that's how you want to spend your time. And not to mention, I I was, even with um, Edgar's film, uh, I was thinking about, uh, there you are, you're you're incarcerated, everybody that you were connected to before that, your family, children, wives, whoever, uh, husbands, are are outside. Mm. And so... You know, pretty uniformly, people are dying without those 
um, family connections. Yes. Uh, I, I noticed in his film. Are dying. Yeah. Mm. So so then to me, um, that is a harder th- for myself to imagine that that would be a harder thing to be isolated away. Maybe that's not true for everyone. I do understand that. But um, to be cut off, really, uh, at that time of life feels so painful to me. And that's the rule, not the exception in that mm-hmm. circumstance. So I can imagine that these the volunteers become the family. Yes, absolutely. And the, all the prisoners are, are uh, after they've lived there for 30 years and more, or even 15 years, the, these, they are a familial bond that they have maybe even deeper than that. It, they are family, and they need each other. So it's, that's, why I, that's why I argue, oh, well, we can transport them, you know, for 15 grand up to CMF, and they can have hospice care up there, but you're ripping them away from their fa- basically their family. It, it does remind me a bit of, you know, people during the AIDS crisis. AIDS still exists, but I, I guess it's not at the same level of crisis, whose, whose families ripped them away mm. from the people who love them, mm. you know, at right. that. I mean, those were excruciating experiences mm. that a lot of people had, and it reminds me of that mm-hmm. in a sense. Um and I was also interested, I read, and I don't remember which thing I read it in, that um, the recidivism rate for people who participate as yeah. um, end-of-life caregivers is astronomically low. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it was zero for um, very serious offenses in this mm-hmm. particular program, and like 2% for... Um, you know, infractions that had to do with um, parole. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. that's remarkable to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so something really goes on there that mm-hmm. that um, has to do with changing the heart, mm-hmm. maybe. Yep. Yeah. And did Gordon you? Of Angola said that. Uh, you know, you can teach teach a. As he would call them criminals, he said, "You can teach a criminal how to use a computer or get a new job, but it's not going to change his heart." And he felt like the hospice. He goes, "If you're going to change a person, you have to change their heart." And he felt his hospice program was doing that. Mm-hmm. And so, did did you feel as I know that the group of men that you worked with recently uh, have already been working pretty hard to. Uh, change their hearts, I guess, find their compassion. Um, But what did you notice in the course of the program happened for those particular men, the eight or nine that you worked with? How did that impact them? Could I just, I would like to share one story that happened at our graduation um, that I still, I'm going to, I may, likely start crying. Um, we did a graduation ceremony with the eight men, and one of the men in our group had had very uh, clearly said earlier in our training that he was so grateful to be in the training class, but he had a lot of fear around being with people who were very ill and dying and could not envision himself sitting at the bedside of someone dying, but he thought that maybe at some point like this information would be helpful. So on the very last day, um, 
he also, the same uh, prisoner said that he was just casually working in the hospital now, which, of course, I asked him about how that, you know, that's quite a journey from going to be afraid of sick people to being in the hospital program. And uh, he, he kind of laughed and said, yeah, it was really, you know, what we were talking about, the class was so different from what he was seeing in terms of how people were treated. And then there was a ceremony where there was a letter given, a certificate of training given, a, a book and a pin. And when I pinned this young, this gentleman, um, his eyes filled up with tears and he said to me, um, please, I ask that all the people at Mission Hospice, if they could please forgive me for what I've done. And there were just tears streaming down his eyes, and we had a conversation about this and how self-forgiveness is the hardest job that we'll ever do. But this desire to somehow within society make right what has been wrong, um, Mm. what, what he did wrong, what other people in the group have expressed over time, and that this is a way back to find their own humanity. And I don't think I've ever been as moved in the 30 years that I've done this and even being with really dear friends that died. I don't think I've ever been as moved by an experience of what caring for someone at the end of life could actually be for someone else. And um, so I know there's there's a there's a hundred other stories, but that particular one just landed um, just really landed with me. Mm. It it reminds me of a, a guest that I had a few weeks ago. Her name is Mar- Margot Van Sleitman, mm-hmm. and she runs a program called Selbana. Um, Her father was murdered when she was 16, and she works uh, very closely with the man who who murdered him. Um, And just some of the things she talked about, uh, the power that they they have coming from those two perspectives and seeing the humanity in each other. He runs a program, a gardening program all over Canada where they have community gardens where um, formerly incarcerated people, community members, and crime victims run the garden together. Wow, that's great. (laughs) It it was pretty incredible. So it's that same, that that same, I, I felt such relief talking to her you know, not that it's easy. I mean, it was 30 years after that, after she lost her father, that they yeah. met. And not that any of it is easy, but that they had come to be friends and, and mm-hmm. to be able to see the humanity in each other. And that's kind of what we're talking about, isn't it? Right. Uh, yep. In yeah. a different, from a different direction. Um, yeah, that just gives me so much some, hope. I think what I noticed the most, because I'd, I'd worked with these men a little bit before that, that training had started, was that uh, so many programs with very good intentions focus on you know a set of skills that can then be replicated or you kind of get out there and use them. And a lot of what I see that gets missed in these programs is that people think they're, the men think they're sort of, they've got this one or they've got that. Okay, now they can do this. Oh, now I'm a counselor or now I'm, I know how to be with somebody who feels suicidal, but it's it's still it takes years and years, as any professional knows or even family person knows that this is a life. This is a way of life. This is a way of connecting to humanity and being on the planet. And bringing in the conversation of death and dying deepens their understanding of everything. It deepens their understanding of their own humanity in a way that then allows them to integrate all of the teachings they're getting. 
so that everything comes around full circle. Yep. It's not just they're becoming skilled at working with end of life. They're becoming skilled at being humans. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. comes it's, from more than just getting uh, going through yeah. a program. That's um, a good I think time that's to... what they really felt. That's a good time to go to break. Let's talk more about that when we get back, though, because imagine if you've... Let's say you've killed somebody, and then you're mm-hmm. working with end of life. The, the impact that must have on your psyche and, and how you think yeah. about things profound. So we'll, we'll come back to that when we, when we, after our break. And during the break, uh, listeners, you can go to my, my website, weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief Post page. And to find the Humane Prison Hospice Project, go to humaneprisonhospiceproject.org. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. 
I'm here with Lady Brooke Morgan, Sandy Fish, and Susan Barber talking about their work uh, training inmates at San Quentin in Compassionate End of Life. And um, with hopes of eventually uh, having a hospice program staffed by um, inmates at at San Quentin, which I've got my fingers crossed for. Um, during the wake, break, we were talking about one of the terrible consequences of of that not uh, being in existence now, and I wondered if one of you could just share that with the audience, because it, I read it in preparing for today, and it had such an impact on me, just hurt my heart so much. Uh, could one of you share that? Sure, I'll share that. Um, so a thing that I think the general public is unaware of, as, as we trained the men, even though there was, quote, no hospice care in San Quentin, men are dying in San Quentin, and um, their cellmates are dying um, in their cells, and the cellmate that's healthy is taking care of them, cleaning them, um, caring for them, and, and very, very close. The cellie is very, very close, and when they die the cellmate that was the caregiver is thrown into the hole, which is solitary confinement, and it's dark and damp, and they are then left to grieve in that situation for, as Susan had said, three to nine months. And um, that's a, a really horrific thing to, for any of us to imagine, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, can, I really can't oh. imagine a worse situation to grieve in. Right. Right. Uh, to be, right. you need to be alone some, sure, but you, but you also need witness. Yeah. Uh, at least that's my experience. You know that community yeah. is where we do a substantial amount of healing from loss. So that must be just so. And and I also read some somewhere one particular person said that when their cellmate was dying, they they really had to uh, call the medical people to take them away even though this person wanted to care for his cellmate Mm -hmm. he couldn't take that chance of being locked up because he would and and that that's a to not to want to take care of i'm i'm thinking of the people i've taken care of Mm -hmm. i've taken care of as they were dying and the compelling um experience i had of uh, really honestly needing to do that Mm mm-hmm uh, you know, it wasn't wasn't a, it was a visceral decision. I must take care of this person, and then to be basically to not have that option um, sounds so wrenching. Yeah, you know, and I also you know to all the listeners who are hearing this conversation, who have had somebody um, killed or, or you know their experience the grief. You know, I can just imagine the idea that. I didn't get to have this for my loved one. I didn't get to care for them. And I don't want anybody to think that what we're saying is that, you know, that doesn't matter. That's incredibly difficult to have be the be sort of the recipient of grief because your loved one has been killed or injured or the victim of a crime. Absolutely. I do think, though, that there's something about our common humanity that giving people an opportunity to do something like the gentleman who said, I know that I'll have to go in the hole if my, if my celly dies, and I'm making that choice now because the last time I couldn't do it, and he died um, in the 
um, prison, you know, sick bay where they, he was, you know, there was nobody there for him. You know, he was cared for by the medical people. They'd look in on him, but there wasn't anybody with him when he died. And I just can't do that again in making that choice that right. they'd rather go in the hole than to allow that to happen to another one of their um, prison cell brothers. Um, I just, that really moved me that, that that's yeah. a choice they're willing to make because because they feel and believe deeply that um, after lots of years of reflection, um, that caring for people while they're dying is of utmost human value. I I appreciate what you brought up too, Susan, that this is not um, to uh, to minimize anything. (laughs) You know, uh, it's just to talk about this particular experience, which is so, so, so common um, in in our culture at this time, in the U.S. at this time. And, of course, a lot of people that are dying in prison didn't murder anybody, didn't take anyone's life. Um, They just did three lesser things. Uh, And so there's there's that, too. Um, Mm -hmm. But one thing I think about a lot, and I'd love your thoughts on it, is just um, if we're thinking about making it, making our uh, society safer, since most people do, uh, you know, we're not talking about these people today, the people who do get released from prisons, Mm -hmm. but most people do. Mm-hmm. you know finish out their time and get released if we're if we're thinking about them then being part of the community again um wouldn't we all want them to be able to be um uh, somewhat healed from what's happened that led them there yeah. so that they have a better chance of not hurting someone yeah. i've always uh, said that i've said at least be you know at least be selfish and watch your own back. You want people released who are compassionate and caring, and and you know it's if at least that. Um, is and who happening. don't feel that their life from then on is forfeit anyhow, <laughs> you know, right. who um, right. who have no incentive to make a life that of meaning and purpose and you know because it's kind of forfeited anyway because of the way um they're then treated from then on Uh, that's a much bigger subject than this this particular hour but i just felt i wanted to have it said yeah that there's it's for all of our good what we're talking about today yeah and i don't know that there's any kind of training anyone can do um, that puts them more in touch with um, our common humanity than being with someone at the bedside, of being a hospice volunteer, or in, in this case, being a compassionate end-of-life um, caregiver to another person who's dying. Mm, yes. And, and to the men's credit, I also want to say, that, you know, there's future thinking, and then there's also in the moment. They, they were very clear that they wanted to learn these skills, even though they weren't going to be getting credit for it. So they didn't get credit for this training right. at San Quentin, like they do right. with other programs. Um, and not all of them are going to be released. Some of these lifers are oh, actually staying in, and part life. of the Brothers Keeper's commitment was that they're there to help, to work with people inside. Yes, there's always the looking forward and what's going to happen when I get out, but their their first commitment is to their fellow prisoners that are inside 
and being right. um, being there for them. Um, and I found that very, it's just a beautiful offering. There's so many people that are constantly looking for, like, well, what's the benefit, you know, later? What can I do for myself outside? And it's like, what, what can I do right now? In this moment, this is where I live. This is my community. How can I show up? And as Susan pointed out, all of the men would every day in the morning say, what can I do? You know, mm. what can I do with where I'm at, That's... with the people that I'm with, and how can I be of most service? And, service. Um, just, it was beautiful. And and it's uh, it reminds me, you know, I'm I'm in a choir, the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir. We sing at prisons, mm-hmm. and we've sung at San Quentin, mm-hmm. and several other prisons. There's something that was different when we sang at San Quentin. I can't quite tell you what, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, it well, it seemed like a very um, woven together community to me. Yes, there's a a friend who's a Buddhist and she does a meditation on death row uh, weekly with the men on death row who participate and she has said because San Quentin has such an extraordinary amount of programs and it's here it is in Marin County and all these people who want to help who are highly qualified go in there. She She thinks it's just one of the most fast-track transformations going on around. She says there's got to be like a beam of light coming from the heavens down to San Quentin because yeah. there's so much transformation going on there. There's yeah. about 3,000 volunteers, I think. Is this, I think this is the, the, a close to accurate number. 3,000 volunteers that volunteer at San Quentin, which makes it very unique in the prison system in the United very States. Very unique. And, and people being transferred to San Quentin from other prisons, yeah. I, I remember hearing one say, he walked in and someone said, hey, how's it going? He's like, where am I? Where you am know, I? Right? Yeah. Someone greeted yeah. him. Uh, uh-huh. it, it's, it is an extraordinary place and it shows in, in a, and that's, that's the hope that the prison system will catch on and go, oh, this is, this is a place that works. And, mm-hmm. Well, and it's ironic because I know when I was younger, I've been in the Bay Area, I've re- I returned to the Bay Area in 71, so I've been here a long time. And that was sort of thought of as like the worst place to go. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> um, and it was. Uh, yes. Oh no, San Quentin! But uh, really, it, it's quite palpable that these things are going on there, which to me says, yes, the um, emotionally intelligent programming mm-hmm. in prisons makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, huge and difference. that these programs are allowed, that, that volunteers yeah. come in and navigate these programs with Mm -hmm. the prisoners is really also quite amazing. And there are 32 other prisons in California, so that's also right. remember, like, oh, we could go on and on about San Quentin, but there's a lot of others. That doesn't happen in all of the others, no, no. Well, we're going to have to end it for today, but I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I can't wait to for the day that it blossoms into uh, into a hospice program, because I, and then that that gets contagious because uh, it's just um, so needed. And thank you for your work, all three of you. Thank you. Thank you, you, Cheryl. Uh, Again, if you want to reach Lady Bird Morgan, Sandy Fish, Sandra Fish, or Susan Barber, you can go to humaneprisonhospiceproject.org. Next week, I'll have Dan Diaz. 
Dan's wife, Brittany Maynard, died of a brain tumor after traveling to Oregon to access their Aid in Dying Act. Dan works tirelessly to fulfill his promise to Brittany to make the end-of-life option available to everyone. He was instrumental in the passage of the California Aid in Dying Act, which is now under very serious attack here in California and has also helped get similar bills passed in other states. So it'll be an interesting conversation. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.